0: From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you, our Starling taking security seriously, cash has been dethroned, and going to the gym and getting your five a day might finally save you some money. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 285 of Fintech Insider. We are coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork Devonshire Square for the first show of 2019. Exciting times. Uh, we hope all of you have a wonderful new year. My name's Simon Taylor and I'll be your host today and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Adam Davis. You may remember him from such Fintech Insider episodes as 274 Open Banking. Adam, how's it going, sir? It's going well, thank you. How was your new year? It wasn't bad. I really tried to work a Simpsons, Troy McClure, like uh, Attack of the 50-Foot Davis in there. and Attack of the 50-Foot Davis? Yeah, Adam versus Goliath. Oh, I like that. like that. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Okay, I see Davis it, I Davis versus see Goliath. <laughs> um, but fortunately, it's not just us. Um, we are joined by some excellent, excellent guests. Of course, we've got Emily Cole. Uh, Emily Cole? Emily Nicole, who's a technology reporter from City AM. Emily, once I said your name right, how are you?
1: <laughs> I'm good, thank you.
0: <laughs> and of course, the returning Val Christensen, Director of Growth and Comms at Oak North. Val, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thank you for being back. And don't forget, listeners, if you've got any questions for us or, or any news story you catch, uh, you can drop us an email, podcast11fs.com, or just hunt us down on social media. Um, and we'll get started with today's story, shall we? Cool. All righty, first story comes from The Telegraph. And if you missed it, Starling Bank are now reviewing their data policy after customer complains his passport was shared in a web link. So this one gets a little complicated, but basically a customer complained uh, about the... Passport details being shared with him on a URL, which is, you know, you go to your browser, you type www that's basically the URL bit. Ben McRae complained that the bank does not take security seriously after they sent him an image of his passport uh, photo page to him using that internet link in an email. He later said uh, he'd reported the bank to the information commissioner. Starling said the URL was actually tokenized and that the use of links was extremely rare. What a way to start the year for Sterling's media team.
2: I know. I mean, it's just like uh, that was, I mean, so he sort of got in touch on you know New Year's Eve. So shocked that he didn't get a, sort of get a response back maybe in the next sort of 10 minutes. Um, and then he decides, okay, well, then I'm going to go to LinkedIn, writes this sort of essay of a complaint, which then does get sort of hundreds of likes and comments. Um, one of which actually was from a Monzo st- software engineer sort of defending Starling, saying, well, it's pretty much impossible to guess a 25-character alpha numeric uh, password or or link, rather. So, you know, unless you get hacked, then there's not really uh, much of an issue here. Why are you kind of making a mountain out of a molehill?
0: Yeah, so, like, I got a one-time link, or or certainly I got a link that only I can use, uh, that's only been issued to me, Mm. that shows me a picture of my passport And if Starling's hacked, somebody else might be able to see that. If Starling is not hacked, then that doesn't get seen.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to jump to conclusion. It doesn't sound like the worst thing in the world. I know we're sort of quite protective of fintech on the show, but like it doesn't sound like the worst breach of all time. Um, but saying that, the response from Starling, sort of, they said, you know, that this you know doesn't happen often, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it sounds like it's an accepted process for them, probably regulatory compliant. Or we'll see, but then on the flip side to that, um, you know, customer expectations. Should the customer have to even think about that? I don't well, know.
0: I mean, kudos for them for coming out and sort of sticking their hands up and saying, here's what we're going to do about it. And they've had to take it seriously because it's been reported to the information commissioner. But like, Ben, if you're listening, get in touch because like, dude, seriously? Seriously? Like this does. So I remember when I worked um, in, across several banks throughout my career, there was always that point where you were trying to get something live, and you would have that person that go, "I've spotted a way that you could hack this," <laughs> and it's like, "Yeah," and it's extremely unlikely that that ever happens. And they go, "It's extremely unlikely until it does happen." And then you go, "Well, yeah, but imagine the amount of things that somebody would have to do to get it done." And then let's test this in the wild and see how often it does happen, and change it if we need to. Roll it out at small scale. The reality is a lot of the fintech banks have been running this at scale for a few years now. And we've not seen this attack vector used. But who knows, maybe on the back of this publicity we will.
2: Yeah. Well, even the fact that it's getting national publicity is even something. I mean, it tells you how far the, you know, the the neobanks and fintechs have come because... Um, you know, Starling has, what, now sort of about half a million customers, thereabouts. So, um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, not sort of millions and millions. They're not a bank that's being used by everyone in the UK. So the fact that a national paper is then picking up the story, um, you know, is is actually quite
0: impressive. But does that speak to a general uh, perception that these new banks may not be secure? Or is it uh, a perception that some might find uh, helps their competitive positioning?
1: I think it speaks... To the opposite, actually, it's more that we all expect these new banks to be so secure because they're supposed to be so technologically advanced compared to traditional banks. So when we get faced with something like a URL that if you happen to send the email to the wrong person, somebody else could see it, that's something that then jars you slightly. It's not what you were expecting. And then that's, I think, probably where the initial reaction came from.
3: Well, I think it's an age where if you, if you look at the year we've just had, especially with Facebook, if you look at... Um, I guess, kind of the the stories that have been coming out in terms of data management, data privacy. Um, I think the expectation is from customers that, you know, with all the noise that's that's sort of circulating at the moment, that banks, in theory, would be able to look after their data. They don't have to think about it. Um, I don't think this would have got as much attention if those stories hadn't come out this year.
0: Uh, So, in in essence, the the tech backlash has sort of moved the conversation from, you know, sort of uh, digital, everything is awesome, to digital, well, maybe it's not. And now people are starting to almost look for these stories, which which I think is interesting. Um, but then also, this is set against the context of, you know, TSB's outage last year, Visa's outage last year, and... Um, old isn't necessarily better either. So there's there's pros and cons to both sides.
3: But how, how far has Stalin come that one mishap, not necessarily the worst mishap in the world, but one mishap has caused national national press and to go?
0: The old saying is, you know you've arrived once you've got haters.
3: That's it. That is it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Uh, any more thoughts on this one? Or should we move on to the next story, which is, uh, this actually comes from TechCrunch. And this, the headline was, 2019 looks to be another lights out. year for fintech startups. They summarize it. With several predictions, which I thought was interesting. The total aggregate value for fintech unicorns will cross 90 billion US dollars, and the to- total number of fintech unicorns will begin to close in on 30. The Matrix US FinTech Index, whatever that is, uh, will deliver 200% returns, I'm guessing that's a fund, um, outperforming incumbents and the S&P 500 by 150%. And there are now 20 FinTech unicorns in the US alone. In fact, there are more FinTech unicorns than any other industry vertical, which I think is particularly interesting. Fintech is hot right now, do we agree with this? Does that feel right to you?
2: Yeah, I mean if you look I mean in the UK we've got 13 unicorns, five of which are um, within the fintech space, so um, you know it's a I guess proportionally that's quite a quite a large amount. but the sort of I, I don't know if the prediction of going from 20 fintech unicorns to 30 in the US in one year, that's quite a quite a big jump. and seems arbitrary. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's sort of like, you know, lick your finger and stick it in the air kind of number. I mean, where, they, where they've where they sort of got that number from. I mean, there are maybe a couple of fintechs that are on the cusp. Um, I mean, if you look in the UK, there's not really, I don't think, any that are, I mean, maybe Atom Bank. I mean, their last valuation put them at $593 million. That was in March of last year. So if they do another round, potentially they could move into unicorn territory. But I'm not sure, um, you know, we're going to see huge numbers of, of, of um Fintechs becoming another unicorns. round
1: with not much launched in between.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think if, if
3: you look at this, the fintech index matrix, which sounds very futuristic, you are right, si.
0: mm-hmm.
3: Um I think this is the top ten publicly listed fintechs in the states. Oh, okay. Um, if you look at the socio-economic, I suppose, environment at the moment in the states, everyone is predicting a bear, you know, bear run on stocks at the moment. So then, if you are then looking at you know the value of fintechs to go up this much for them to be ten new unicorns. Um, this is seriously something that means that this index, however they've done it, I think it's uh, over the two year returns to this point is about 133%. That's high. Um, 33% for the top 10 incumbents, which of financial services who aren't fintechs. Like the difference is enormous. Like the growth has been incredible. But against like, you know, slowing global growth against everything that's happening in the States at the moment, Donald Trump's tweets, like, you know, is that sort of a social economic environment actually, you know, going to stop these guys growing? Is there, you know, will that affect fintech in the way that we've seen it potentially affect other businesses?
1: We do have some listed fintech access in the UK as well, that kind of shows the other side of things. We've got Augmentum Fintech and S 3 which are both like listed VC funds, essentially which Draper Suite has quite a bit of fintech in it. It's a Revolut backer, but Augmented Fintech focuses solely on our lovely financial services startups, and both of them are doing incredibly well compared to when you look at the wider scope of how fintech has performed as individual stocks, funding circles, IPO. Anybody?
0: I mean, if you look back on 2018, uh, it's the year that fintech really grew up um, and became not only mainstream but you know kind of really big, and, and so its potential. Uh, we covered a little bit of uh, this in our episode 281 and 282 as we looked back on 2018 and made our predictions for, for 2019 as well. But it feels to me like it is the season for 2019 predictions. And it's an interesting opportunity to kind of reflect on that because you've got Plaid and Circle and Brex and Root and Lending Home, kind of really exciting next generation of these fintech startups. It appears. Unlike, I think, um, sort of the, the big consumer tech players like your Facebooks and your Googles, like that they had this one generation, the golden generation that then became massive, there hadn't been anything to really challenge them. In fintech, there just seems to be more and more opportunity and, and more of these coming. It's not, you know, the ones you've got are the ones that are going to be big. It feels like there's a lot out there that's still very much on a growth uh, trajectory.
2: I agree. I just think that also we have to sort of be mindful of not getting too obsessed with the valuations yeah, and actually thinking fair. about the... Yeah. You know, the value that these businesses are actually delivering. I mean obviously totally different sectors, but Blipper offer their offer by I mean, they're just examples in the last month of, you know, businesses with billion plus valuations that have um you know have gone into administration or gone bankrupt. So, you know, the, the valuations really, you know, don't mean anything on you know, they mean something on paper, but until, you know, there's an IPO or a sale, um, you know, they don't actually materialize. So um I think in terms of that maturity and looking forward, you know, what I would like to see, especially to ensure that we have continued investment in the sector, is, you know, more of these businesses starting to actually make money and profits because that's going to reassure the customer that they're here to stay and reassure investors and actually demonstrate, you know, to the wider market that, you know, fintechs need to be taken seriously.
0: That that Uber model of kind of just take on massive amounts of funding, grow at all costs and worry about profit later. There are, there have been people that have tried to have done that and failed. And that doesn't appear to be the model that succeeds in fintech. We could be wrong. It works to a point, but at a certain point, you have to flip that to now look for sustainable. That's also the
2: one in a billion business. I mean, yeah. that's the Amazon, the Ubers. I mean, these are, re- I mean, I think of all the businesses that have started in the last, you know, since Amazon um, was founded or since Google was founded, I mean, People kind of use them as a, as a model and say, oh, we're doing that model where we pursue growth at all costs. But they forget that they are really the one in the billion. And maybe you are too. But
0: yeah. Although flipping that, I do think still inside the incumbents mindset, there's almost the opposite approach, which is this thing's going to have profit in year one, which mm-hmm. is unrealistic for yeah. a small venture as well. Like there's, there is definitely this kind of uh, almost delivery date Um, obsession inside um, uh, large organizations that actually um, smaller organizations don't concern themselves with the delivery date. They concern themselves with delivery quality a lot more. Mm, And that as a mindset shift, I think is a really interesting one to keep an eye on. Um, and speaking of mindset shifts, um, the uh, big tech we sort of briefly touched on there. There's a story here, uh, which is our third story this week, from Business Insider. Um, Google just nabbed themselves an e-money license, and it highlights a uh, potential threat coming from uh, tech companies towards those incumbent banks. Uh, the e-money license was granted in Lithuania, uh, famously, uh, the, the home of uh, Revolut's new banking license, I believe. This permit would allow Google to offer similar services to Revolut, for example, prepaid cards, uh, and allows the company to take advantage of passporting rights enabling it to offer services throughout Europe. Now they're not the first big tech companies to do this. I think Facebook got a similar license about a year ago, am I right saying that? You are it's 2016 that no, got. 2016. One. Yeah. Um, these e-money licenses, of course, have been the thing that a lot of the early fintech boom was kind of built on, right? You saw uh, Monzo and others, uh, Revolut, um, go that route of kind of having the prepaid card, getting customer base, and then sort of leveraging from there. Do we, what do we think is behind this? Any any thoughts?
1: I mean, sometimes it's, the easiest thing is actually things that you wouldn't think of from a normal fintech player. Google could be using this license to do things like, allowing you to send a payment through a Gmail, for example, same as Facebook would do with Messenger. And that could be all they intend to do with it in the first instance. Obviously, it's Google, so it's never really the end. But um, it's not necessarily a sign that big tech is really going to be trying to take over from the likes of Chime and Revolut and Monzo.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I kind of agree. I think this is, if you look at uh, Google Pay strategy, I think this is payments related. Um, I'd be surprised in the first instance if it's not... Um, I think, to be honest, that, that wider question of, you know, uh, big tech, the gaffers getting involved in in financial services and eating from the incumbents. I think, to be honest, they've already they've already started doing that mm. to a certain degrees. I mean, if you look at Amazon, who now do uh, S&B business loans in the US and the UK, not to the levels of, you know, sort of the incumbents in the States for sure, but they are doing it. But you have to be an Amazon member in order to get it. Um, if you look at uh, WhatsApp and WhatsApp Pay, um, they're concentrating, I think, on uh, some of the geographies where actually WhatsApp is used for end-to-end business services. So it's always linked back to a wider goal. You look at Apple and Apple Pay, and they're making a fortune from the interchange, you know, slice of the interchange fee. But ultimately, it's to shift more phones. And I still think, from a from a big tech perspective, the end goal is not necessarily, you know, actually what the banks' goals are. It's different. Um, classic example of that is, you know, the amount of money some of the the gaffers make from, you know, infrastructure and cloud services provision and things like that because you have to think about they make so much money from that and the potential to make even more money from incumbents is is you know is almost infinite if you think about how many incumbents at the moment are redoing their cloud strategies or in the midst of it
0: i think it's really interesting the different big tech strategies playing out in that space because you see microsoft is super well positioned for that pure infrastructure play they're almost trying to enable everybody else rather than having that consumer brand in the payment space whereas Apple Pay is a really interesting one because Apple take you know a decent old whack of the interchange. You know, um, fifteen bits is what, um, nearly half of European interchange. Yep. So as a as a card issuer, you're giving up half of your interchange revenue to support Apple Pay. I mean no wonder the bank sort of gulped a little bit before they, before they accepted that. But actually that's a huge revenue line for Apple at this point. They're, they're I mean, granted <laughs> in, a, in a balance sheet that's got some pretty huge revenue lines on it, it barely shows up. but it's a decent business. Like if they were a card issuer, they'd be a pretty one of the world's largest card issuers by interchange revenue. So th- I think it's one of those creeping things that it, it's never going to happen, it's never going to happen away it's already happened uh, to a certain degree. And then to, I think, to Emily Nicole's point, there's something really interesting about these these services that we barely notice of, like, Gmail has that little payment button on it, um, Facebook Mm. Messenger has that little payment button on it, and it feels like nobody uses them except hundreds of millions of people around the world use them. Yeah. And, like, they, these tech giants have scale that you don't even realize at some sometimes. Well,
2: I think that's the thing. and Because, you know, you always hear it. Oh, they're coming in to, you know, the, the, the big tech firms are coming in to steal the incumbents' lunch. And, you know, um, they're going to pose a serious threat. But obviously, they do pose a threat to, you know, some of the, the newer, smaller fintechs. I mean, Revolut said on more than one occasion, they want to be the, you know, the Amazon of banking. But if Google comes into the boxing ring, then, you know, you, your fighting chance kind of goes down a little bit.
3: Or Amazon themselves. Yeah, or Amazon. Yeah, been, exactly. of Amazon. Yeah.
0: So I'm a veteran of the whole 2011, 12, 13, like, will they come in um, and do NFC payments kind of conversation? And the real thing there was around uh, GSMA and the mobile network operators, and they were trying to get themselves together. If anybody remembers the poorly named ISIS, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, this was this was uh, a bunch of telcos. That's unfortunate. Yeah. It was a bunch of telcos in the US that got together to form basically a conglomerate. I think there was um, the Dutch uh, uh, telcos and banks got together and tried to do the same thing. And they were basically going to have their own payment scheme for for mobile payments. And the real worry was the way uh, Apple and Google came into the uh, telco market was over the top of the existing rails. And the worry in banking was that that would happen and it would erode that customer relationship. Your relationship becomes more with the operating system than it does with the provider of the dumb pipes. We're sort of seeing that play out in banking, but because the business model in banking is so very different, there isn't just a subscription to the underlying service. Really, most of your money's made on lending. It's quite a different beast. The really interesting one for me is Amazon and lending, um, and will others start to play in that lending space? That's when I think the big banks will really, really get scared.
3: Yeah, I think seismic shift for Amazon is if they they stop that – well, they won't stop it, but if they complement the focus on people – or businesses signing up to their ecosystem and they actually go outside of that and they say, you know, we'll start lending to anybody. That's the first way they're obviously going to grow their loan book. Um, I think secondly, from an Amazon perspective or from any of the Gaffer's perspective, they start actually issuing uh, checking accounts and they and Amazon do the deal with JP Morgan that I think they've been in talks with, what, six months ago? So yeah. I don't know I don't know where they've gone with that. But if they actually do that and they get into that game, then what you just said in terms of that, you know, the front end being what the customer sees, the banks will be pushed further and further back. Um, not to say that it that will be, you know, a an infinite. So you won't just lose them because I think there's a, there's you know, the partnership's going to have to be give and take. Um, but it is interesting at the moment. They're sort of, you know, I suppose, skirting around the edges of what they could possibly do um, using, the, I guess, the cloud infrastructure play to really get in, I suppose, and own the ecosystem. But from individual plays, you know, growing you know, loans, going into mortgages, things like that, I don't know. I'm 50-50. I, I think they, I think 50, they always 50. wanted to
0: stay away from being regulated too heavily. And especially post-Cambridge Analytica, they're going to start facing a, a real chunk of regulation in their own right. So do they want to invite more pressure upon themselves? Yeah, probably not. Mm-hmm. Mm. Fair to say. All right, next story comes from Forbes. Uh, Microsoft are partnering with Zest. Finance, nice zesty story for you there, Um, to bring transparency to AI-powered financial models. Um, They're entering this strategic partnership to make it easier for financial services customers, in other words, banks, insurers, that sort of organization, to adopt AI and machine learning tools. Um, So Zest Finance offer artificial intelligence tools with Microsoft products. Um, Microsoft have struggled to use some advanced deep learning models because of an explainability problem apparently this is where Zest come in, um, so they can help financial institutions understand why machine learning models says yes to one credit application but no to another. So interesting that that reads like Microsoft couldn't sell AI, so they've partnered with somebody who can sell AI.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think obviously... What a weird the,
0: headline.
2: <laughs> I mean, the use of, of big data and machine learning in in lending is something that you've seen at the smaller end of the scale. You see it in sort of the the credit modeling and... And sort of scoring a uh, sort of score-based system so on a tick box approach obviously bigger players like us are moving into it with sort of slightly larger ticket sizes um but according to zest's website their customers um upon using um their products see a loss reduction of 30 percent and approval rates grow by 15 percent with no added risk so uh, you know that's there's a quite i mean impressive. that's a business case
0: that writes itself well,
2: exactly i mean you know and assuming those those are true then um you know as you say then it's the selling of it will be but, but i
0: love the preconditions to that right i'd love to know like what does an organization need to have done as a prerequisite to get those results because it's kind of like um, this personal trainer helped this athlete go from here to here but the person who didn't change their diet or commit to the regime well, it's
2: exactly it's like lloyd's or hsbc is saying our approval rates are 75 percent or 80 percent. it's like you've, that's because you've gone through the kind of pre-screening where you've already said don't bother applying yeah. for a loan with us and then the ones who you know get told they should apply, and then they approve, you know, the majority
0: of them. I I wrote a blog post called Crappy Data is Why We Can't Have Nice Things. Uh, And essentially, it it was predicated on most... Big organizations use their mainframe as their core customer record. Around that, they'll have several different data lakes and data silos. They'll have the onboarding system, and then they'll have the credit engine, and then they'll have a bit of data that came from the credit agency 15 years ago when somebody onboarded as a customer. And a little bit of address information sitting in a CRM somewhere else. And none of this can be accessed in real time. If you can, you can't query across it. And then, if you did, when you get it, it looks like garbage, and it, it's not really helpful. A lot of they've got a real data quality, data timeliness, data accuracy set of problems, and you've got to fix all of those before you can have AI. So it's, it's kind of like saying, "Yeah, I want to win the marathon. I'm going to start training." And it's like, "Well, yeah, but first you got to just do the basics. You got to get your diet right." You, the, the, I really do think that that's a concern for large organizations that get sold, like AI is the the silver bonnet, the panacea, but there are so many prerequisites before you get there.
2: Absolutely. I mean, the, da- the data that you'll get, especially from businesses of this size, which, you know, will be small businesses, maybe even sole traders, micro-businesses, you know, they, they operate sort of like an individual. And, yeah. um, you know, the data is not structured. I mean… One person might have all of their data, you know, spreadsheet. Yeah, exactly, an Excel spreadsheet. One might be using, you know, something, uh, you know, zero. I mean, there's, there's, it's never going to be something that's going to be the same for everyone. And so as you said, then that data needs to be structured before you can start to use machine learning to 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 figure out what to do next.
0: I do think though that the ways we model credit haven't really changed much in decades, especially for the large institutions. It's kind of the same thing. It's almost like, um, you know, in retail, it's like you draw a line at the credit score, anything below 600, you just say no to. You know, And it's like, then and, and genuinely, they're not a lot more sophisticated than that. It really is that simple. There might be some basic AML checks, but they are really noddy in how they do these checks. And there's a lot of good customers that get turned away because they're not just being a bit smarter. And actually, this isn't like using deep learning at the cutting edge sometimes. It's just going back and looking at your scoring models and and actually having an infrastructure that's capable of giving you more data that can allow you to um, kind of come up with something a bit more realistic.
3: I wonder if this is a, um, just playing with that, I wonder if this is a regulatory play, because saying something like explainability problem basically means that, yeah, I think they've actually probably tackled that and they've thought, well, hang on, we've got something new kind of cool. This is definitely going to work, but no one understands it. Uh, We need to make sure that people get it. And I think um, from a regulator's perspective, they're probably looking at AI thinking, how on earth are we going to understand what we see? Um, as well as, you know, obviously the big tech companies and banks and other providers thinking, how yeah. can we show it so they can they can see it right? I
0: think you've uncovered something interesting there. There's this fear that because a deep learning algorithm um, will come out with an answer, but it won't know how it got there, it will just go through regressions and regressions and regressions and go, here's my answer then you do have an explainability problem in that sense. That's, that's, a, that's a fair point. Um, and, but it, again, that strikes me as something that's useful for those people that have the infrastructure that's advanced enough to be able to have that problem, which most large financial institutions probably don't.
3: Yeah, I was, I've i been part of an AI program a couple of years ago now, and I remember there was a whole bunch of use cases which uh, were drawn up, and we were looking at you know sort of how to do it. Um, how to get the results we wanted, et cetera, et cetera. But actually the first sort of, you know, good three, four months and then probably longer was all around how can we actually get the data together in one place? So, you know, all the you know best intentions in the world, um, you know, your data's got to be right.
0: I know a former chief data officer from a very, very large bank who spent two years trying to do that and couldn't get it done. And that, person was also one of the founders of the general big data movement. This is somebody who really, really was a, a world-leading expert. The data problem inside incumbent organizations is massive, and I think it's it's kind of the elephant in the room in a lot of cases.
1: I can't remember which bank it was now, but I remember writing a story sometime last year about a big bank in the UK that just hired a new head of cloud, and they talked about this story where there was someone who used to do all the data... Well, maybe you told me this story. Someone used to do all the data for the bank and then that person retired and then they had no one left who knew how it worked. <laughs> <laughs> and so then they had to kind of bring that work around it to bring that person back in as an advisor, even though they were in retirement, just because they had no one left who knew how to manage the data of the bank and all the so this
0: was um, I think it was Anna Herrera that did um, the Cobol Cowboys story Um, so so Google Cobol Cowboys C-O-B-O-L Cowboys and this is a group of uh, sort of retirees 70 somethings uh, who have worked in mainframes for a lot of the big different banks throughout their career and they charge ludicrous sums of money by the hour because they are literally the only people who know how some of the big systems uh, for some of the world's largest banks work 46%
2: of the world's banks are written in COBOL. So it's like,
0: Yeah, I mean... But then what really scares me is a lot of um, what's happened now is that these core systems that were written in COBOL have a bit of code wrapped around them. That bit of code allows them to operate inside of Azure or Google Mm. Cloud. And it's still the same COBOL code underneath it all. And people go, it's cloud native now. And it's like, no, it's not. Like, I can put a a jacket around a rat, but it's still a rat. You know, it's like... Alrighty, that feels like the right time to go for a break. (laughs) Weird (laughs) metaphors aside. (laughs) Thank you, Brain, for that weird metaphor. Uh, We'll have more for you shortly.
3: How can Sam afford the latest smartphone while she's at university? It must cost her parents a fortune
2: to send her there.
0: Oh, she's fine. She can just borrow the cash and pay it back when she bags a high-powered graduate job.
2: Well, the tuition fees alone must be nearly £30,000.
0: Well, she'll be earning a lot more than that after a couple of years.
3: But imagine starting your career with £60,000 worth of debt.
0: Hmm. Yeah, you could buy plenty of smartphones with that.
3: Millennials. Future consumers or debt slaves. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash join us.
0: Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision, to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS, weird metaphors and all. Uh, Just FYI, the nominations for the British Bank Awards 2019 have now been released, and for the first time, awards will have categories for vendors. And one of them is Consultancy of the Year. And 11FS have been invited to take part. Last year's awards saw the likes of Starling Bank, Money Farm, Bud, and Wise Alpha receive great accolades. And we'd love to join them, wouldn't we, Adam?
3: Yes, we would. Yes, <laughs> we would. I didn't see this coming, but yes, we
0: would. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we don't want to be left alone. We want to be. We want to join those I guys. We want to join the party, absolutely. Yeah, don't leave us all lonely. You wouldn't leave us alone, would you? I've
2: already voted for you guys. Oh, don't worry. Check that out, That's Oh, that's so
0: awesome. Uh, And if you are listening and you happen to have your phone in your hand and or access to a laptop, um, then we'd love your vote too. Just head on over to bit.ly forward slash 11fs one one 2019. That's 2019 to put our name in. bit.ly, bit.ly uh, forward slash 11fs 2019. And put our name in and uh, we'll, be, we'll be thanking you. And you can drop me a note, simon at 11fs.com and tell me you voted. And I'll send you a virtual hug if you do. Thank you so much. All right, on with the show. Enough cheap plugs aside. Bit.ly forward slash 11FS20. Shameless, (laughs) shameless. Oh, dear. (laughs) On with the show. Um, All right, this one uh, comes from Finextra.com and Financial are in talks to buy World First uh, with a takeover worth uh, up to $700 million. Of course, World First are a UK currency transfer service And uh, they offer uh, currency exchanges that uh, process more than $15 billion a year and has more than 600 employees. The deal's seen as enabling Ant Financial to further its ambitions uh, in the global rollout of its mobile payment service, Alipay. And, of course, it follows their failed bid to buy the U.S. money transfer business MoneyGram last year, which I believe was blocked by a branch of the U.S. government, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Yeah. And so I think it makes total sense that that would, you know, they'd sort of go after a British company. They didn't sort of have the same trade wars that are going on right now yep. with the US. Um, I mean, and also, Worldfest has been taking steps to become the first foreign firm to be granted a license um, that would allow it to operate in China's payment services sector. Uh-huh. Um, Pay- PayPal are also in talks with the Shanghai Financial Services Office about getting a local license. But some of the work then was potentially already um, being done. They knew that there was an appetite there. So, um of of the you know UK companies that are operating this space and maybe you know Revolut and TransferWise are a bit too expensive now
0: yeah but world first have been in that chasing pack for quite some time as one of the currency transfer businesses and uh, focusing specifically on several remittance corridors i believe india is one of their largest remittance corridors um as is, as is the broader middle east region um so from Ant financial you can see why this is quite strategic i suppose
1: i sometimes think that this might be the only option for the world of currency exchange now there are so many out there and people like Revolut trustwise, TransferWise like the ones you mentioned they're really the hottest tickets, the ones that young people are going towards because they know that they're going to get a good deal with them. So you see these in, almost incumbent currency exchange are still kind of lumbering around. They're doing lots of money still, but you wonder what their future is going to be. And so maybe takeovers is the way forward.
0: Sell, consolidate, m that sort of stuff seem, seems inevitable. And if you've got a big Chinese buyer who's going to pay a decent rate for a you know, company that was... Uh, I believe, privately held. I don't know.
1: It's just arm holdings all over again in my my (laughs) book. The UK is a prime country for foreign takeovers, especially from Asia, and this is all we're seeing. Although it was interesting that sometime last year, the UK government said they were looking at legislation which would enable them to even undo takeovers they thought were too anti-competitive and would harm the UK's standing. This doesn't look like it's going to be one of those. But I mean, if it was transfer you never know. Yeah.
2: But it's exactly true what you said. I mean, another one very recently is Earthport, right? Visa yeah. um, looking to acquire Earthport for about 200 million. Um, they do currency exchange as well. I mean, it's not the only thing they do, but, you know, it's just another example. That if you don't make it to the sort of scale of the transfer or the Revolutes, then potentially your only option is to, you know, be acquired.
0: And it might not be a bad outcome for the founders. It might not be a bad outcome for the employees if if you're uh, working, especially with um, somebody like an Ant Financial and an Alipay. Um, But where where do you think this sits in the Alipay Ant Financial strategy? I mean, uh, we we had a a couple of uh, Dutch guests late last year talking about how Alipay is is popping up all over the Netherlands. Um we've got a lot of friends in the Scandinavian region saying you know Alipay is is almost ubiquitous there now. Will we start to see that? I I'm you know, here in the the fintech bubble of London, I certainly haven't seen it much, but I, I could be just that could just be my observer bias.
1: Yeah, I mean it's all over hot spots in the UK, but mainly ones that are travelled to by Chinese tourists. Uh-huh. So Vista Village accepts WePay and Alipay. Mm-hmm. Um and there are a few shops around here that will also do the same um imperial so, college yeah so i I almost feel like it's probably a move that will enable tourists to do more with their alipay account because they'll be able to get they'll be encouraged to use that service more when they're abroad because they'll feel like they're getting a better exchange rate or something something similar along those lines um but it's i think it's pro- also just a sign they want to get alipay Out there a bit more, and so if they have currency exchange services, maybe Brits who hold money in GBP will think, "Oh, I could use this when I'm abroad," or "I could use this to send money to X places."
0: Interesting combination of uh, that existing strategy that they've had for quite some time that is being extended. What do you think the remittances piece plays into that? Because a lot of that was tourists coming to the UK and using it in retail stores. This is very much a remittance player they've bought. Um, Is it an acquisition of a license, maybe? Is it an acquisition of people who are remitting out from the UK to another region? I'm just curious as to is there a strategy there that links to that follow the tourist piece? Or is it, of course, then just clearly, um, this is a way to move money between China and the UK? And maybe you've got um, kind of um, students in the UK who could then send money back or receive money from China?
1: I mean, it's almost a bit of both, isn't it? People are tourists, but they're also travelling over here for business almost non stop not just here, but the u s all over europe asia so in a sense, they want people to be doing more of those big transactions and small transactions alike. Mm-hmm. um and by buying a business that can handle both things,
2: it probably is the best move forward. I mean, they're not processing an insignificant sum. And fifteen billion a year is you know, fifteen billion dollars rather is is you know, is pretty substantial. I mean maybe not in and financial terms, but um you know, it's it's yeah, it's it's still pretty significant.
0: It's meaty, isn't it? All right. Um whilst we're in China, uh, Chinese ride hailing app did he shi I think I've said Shooting,
1: that. I think' Shooting. It says it. Um, I, I don't know. Just me. call them <laughs> DD and it's
0: fine. Yeah, DD. <laughs> All right, there we go. I, I should have asked you that before I got started. This comes, of course, from City AM. Um, and they're expanding into fintech as driver regulation raises its head. So they've launched um, a suite of financial products, uh, including crowdfunded health insurance, wealth management, lending all aimed at short-term workers on temporary contracts. Um, The new products will put Didi against major Chinese rivals Alibaba and Tencent, And of course, there was new regulation introduced recently uh, that's predicted to hurt Didi's driver's numbers, as workers signing up will now have to pass an exam and apply for specific ride-hailing business licenses. Uh, Didi's fleets in Beijing and Shanghai were already feeling the impact of renewed legislation after local governments curtailed its majority migrant driver workforce with so-called local cars, local drivers measures. Um, Any more thoughts on this one?
1: Um, I think it's just another. It's another move for DD to try and move away from what's happened to them this year. Well, last year, sorry. If if you're not familiar, um, in 2018, DD suffered probably its worst year yet. There were two separate murders of women killed by their DD drivers. The company was forced to put 16 million into its customer service operations in order to try and bump up the safety. And they say that these suite of financial products is also meant to be safety geared, not necessarily at the passenger side but probably more towards their their workers i think the reason why they're doing crowdfunded health insurance wealth management aimed at those short-term workers to temporary contracts is it's meant to be for their own employees it's trying to bring them in at a time when dd has a terrible name terrible reputation this is
0: pr in a big way yeah
1: and regulations really hitting them hard as well um I did also say, I think the FT also covered this. And in their version, they said that they'd spoken to a driver locally who had said that they hadn't actually been asked to take the exam yet either. Didi hasn't very really been proactive in pursuing that angle yet. So probably they're trying to ramp up the Uber side of things. They famously acquired Uber China in 2016.
0: Yes, of course.
1: Um, but they're trying to ramp up the Uber aspect of their business where they appeal to drivers by saying, oh, we're flexible, we offer you all these perks, mm-hmm. come and join us. It's a comfortable lifestyle.
0: I think that package thing you're also seeing with Grab and many others, where um, offering payments and insurance and the whole package of like balancing that. Yes, it's flexible; you switch it on and switch it off. But you've almost got this pseudo. Whilst it's not an employment contract, you've got all of these other things that come in the suite, um, helping you get access to um, funds as soon as you've finished the ride. You know that real-time payments availability, that ability to have all of the healthcare and things associated with that. I don't think it's just about cleaning up image. It is about that driver. Yeah, I mean, the financial but,
2: services, specifically for the gig economy, that it will benefit, you know, more than just their drivers, as you say. I mean, if you look at, you know, who, who, you know, who will um, benefit globally. I mean, everything from sort of delivery and Uber drivers, and obviously their, their own drivers. Um, I mean, car insurance is a pretty low-hanging fruit. Um, you know, it sort of remains to be seen whether some of the other products that they're looking, you know, like the um, the wealth management and the lending, whether those are ones that,
0: you know, would... Possibly the lending. Know, it's interesting to me how vertically integrated that is. It says to me that the world of traditional financial services was just not working for the gig economy at all. And typical big financial services, they draw the, uh, they draw the line on the credit uh, risk score, the FICO 600, anything below this doesn't work, as we said earlier. And here you have uh, an organization that can see precisely... The income of their drivers and therefore can offer a suite of packages with all of their data and indeed some data about how well these people drive, you know, how fast are they driving. So, from an insurance standpoint, their data is an absolute dream.
3: Yeah, there's also, um, I think, from a gig economy perspective, I think um, the idea of income smoothing and making sure that you are and you have credit through a year, um, even with intermittent income, um, I think is super important and it's something that we've looked at quite recently. Mm. Um, it, I, I think. This screams to me, you know, if you're going to invest the money, you invest it on the consumer, you know, the consumer operations side, and you actually build up those services. It'll be interesting from my perspective to understand how much of an overhead that's actually going to cost versus the income that they make, because there's a real reason why Uber just didn't want to do any of this and sort of wash their hands of it. Um, probably because, you know, cost of operations was going to be quite high. Maybe it was just they just couldn't couldn't be bothered i think or they just didn't want to have that sort of overhead on their on their books and on their shoulders so it'll be interesting to see as this goes on um you know how much is this actually going to cost them um versus um, how much revenue they make and you know is, are the would they, these kind of overheads actually cripple the company and also
2: they're invested in o- Ofo or o- Ofo bike as well weren't yeah. they so maybe this is sort of Offsetting some of the potential losses from that as well.
0: They, they just seem to have not had a great time of it lately. Um, whereas you know Alibaba and Tencent feel really well placed to take advantage of this, and they seem to be uh, a lot closer to the the wishes of the uh, of the Chinese uh, People's Party. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. Someone's going to run and run, I'm sure. Um, we'll look forward to more articles um, from Emily on, on exactly this. And of course, you can go to City AM uh, to to read that article, which has a lot more detail. All right, next story comes from the FT, um, and regulatory capture has hit the news. Of course, Denmark are now shaking up their watchdog um, after the Danske Bank scandal. Um, the, Den- the, the Danish government wants to stop banks being too close to supervisors in response to the Danske Bank 200 billion euro money laundering scandal. Um, so um, 200 billion euros, uh, (laughs) flowed through its Estonian branch and was laundered cash flowing illegally out of Russia, the UK and the British Virgin Islands. Danske Bank only admitted this after pressure from investigations by the US and Danske said it would donate all of its profits earned from the suspicious accounts between 2007 to 2015 to a charity focused on combating international financial crime. The donation totals £178 million compared to the £200 billion. Um, so there's a big rise in Danska's share price recently occurs when the uh, head of the local FSA said that some estimates from the fines, uh, uh, some of the fines the bank was likely to receive were probably inflated. So not surprising then that we see this article on the back of it that maybe the, uh, the supervisor is too close to the bank's. So, we got friend of the show and reg tech expert Sean Lewin, aka the reg doctor herself, uh, to talk us through this one. She explains uh, what regulatory capture actually is and how it applies in this case. Let's hear from her now.
4: Regulatory capture, according to a definition by Carpenter and Moss in their book, Preventing Regulatory Capture. Is the result or process by which regulation in law or application is consistently or repeatedly directed away from the public interest and towards the interests of the regulated industry by the intent and action of the industry itself. Several mechanisms um, for regulatory capture have been thought about and posited in regulatory scholarship. For example, the exertion of industry influence by lobbying, using campaign contributions to sway policymakers. Uh, through repeated interactions between the regulator and the regulated. And we can also think of capture as being something a little less tangible, more intellectual or cultural. Um, For example, through the so-called revolving door between the industry and the regulators, where members of staff from industry work for the regulator and then vice versa. In the Danske Bank example, the chairman of the FSA until May 2018 was actually a former finance director at Danske Bank, seemingly a clear example of this revolving door. Um, But defending the FSA uh, against the accusation of capture, Jasper Berg, the head of the FSA, argued that in order to regulate properly, um, the FSA needs to employ people who have deep practical expertise of financial services. Um, whilst this may well be the case, um, the need to implement measures to stop the regulator and industry from getting too close for comfort is is really made clear by the Danske Bank case. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of measures they they put in place to try and prevent regulatory capture in the future.
0: Thank you very much, Sean. As always, and regulatory capture does certainly seem like it's one of those issues that we're going to have to keep dealing with. And the closeness of uh, the banking industry to regulators does sound very familiar to the financial crisis. But it is, of course, a challenge um, because uh, you find former regulators want to get that big job at the uh, at the bank and make a lot more money. Uh, you find that uh, the banks themselves are at the cutting edge and genuinely have the most information about what's really going on as well. So there's this constant. Double edged sword. It's a really challenging one.
1: I mean, so it's not like Danske Bank has come out of this completely unscathed either, even though there is this relationship that works both ways they've definitely suffered as a result of the scandal their share price hit five five-year lows and um, they've issued multiple profit warnings and 10 people have been arrested um, by estonian prosecutors on suspicion of helping clients transfer suspicious money through the bank in a system- systematic and coordinated manner it was definitely something that seems pretty planned
0: it's uh, it's certainly good to see at least something happening in that space, but the end the scale of this uh, two hundred billion is is just still eye-wateringly large. I mean, that is more than all of crypto. That would build you four hundred hospitals. That is an absolutely phenomenal sum of money. And I come back to the processes for how you prevent this are still a piece of paper with you know, questions like, where did you get that money? Oh, I won it at gambling. Great, we followed the process. But it really encourages me that the Financial Action Task Force, the global body that uh, works with governments to manage AML risk, uh, has now moved from, do you have a process, to how effective is your process? And you'll see them starting to lean on sovereigns through the G20 uh, to start to, to tweak that. And I think historically, it had been okay for a bank to say to a regulator, ah, but I have a process. But actually, what that meant is the same old crappy process that was done in paper and which customers hated would get more and more entrenched, rather than somebody sort of saying, actually, can we do this differently? Can we do something that's more secure and a better experience,
3: or is the bank saying oh, I've got a process? You, Mr. Regulator, need to follow this process because we're that powerful. But that's the way it goes. And I think that's, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the um, the sentiment that I drew when I read read about this and read about this news in particular. Um, you know, it feels to me like this is a. Well, hang on a minute. You know, banks are they just too big? Um, I know there's a lot of things about too big to fail and all that sort of stuff. But actually, are they so big that they're sort of demanding of the regulator, cert, you know, to allow them? to um to almost do what they will with their processes that they've got in place and i think that's that's coming out here a little bit which is you know actually who who's in control
2: well and i think the too big to fail absolutely um i mean too big to jail apparently not because i mean sort of you know 10 arrests so far i think you know it sort of reminds me of the um the end of the big short movie where uh-huh. the the narrator sort of says um, and, you know, then there were a bunch of arrests and uh, there was, you know, there was justice to everyone. And then actually it's like uh, actually just a joke. Um, you know, no one got arrested or pretty much two people got arrested and they were bailed out by the taxpayer. Hopefully, you know, um, with the to the arrests we're seeing now, then, um, you know, you will see that accountability. It's not going to be um, a replication of what we saw after the financial crisis.
1: I think it's more a question of... Um Accountability on what scale? Because we know that 10 people have been arrested, but we don't know who they are. Danska said they've um, identified around 42 former employees that were possibly involved in it. But their chief executive, he just stood down. He now might be setting up another company probably going to get away scot-free so he used to
3: manage Estonia I think he used to be um, head of I think it was international relations head of international markets. so he used to have uh, oversight over the operations in Estonia before he became the chief of the thing. it's been
2: going on for nine years or something right so the amount of people yeah. who would have had fingers in this pie is much more than 10 people it's
0: weird how falling on your sword as the c-suite is seen as kind of almost honorable even yeah. though you've committed massive uh, or are alleged to have committed um, massive um, crimes it, It's really concerning to me, though, that the solutions to this are eminently doable. But historically, this had been seen as a compliance problem, not a share price problem. And I think actually, if you look at the share prices of European banks... That is clearly a conversation at the board level in the C-suite. And yet this issue will continue to affect the share price because the news drives the share price. It creates the crisis. Um, yes, Brexit is driving a lot of that. But I also think like, if you found yourself in the middle of this storm, It's not a compliance project to get this right. It's survival. Because if you look at not only Danske's share price, but the banks that have exposure to Danske, um, the likes of Deutsche and others who have a lot of exposure to Danske, their share price is down. And it starts to reach a point where they're trading so far below book value. Um, their their sort of market cap is so far below the value of their assets they become an obvious acquisition target which is the closest thing to death for a bank which is the ultimate failure of the board and the uh, executive um but, you know maybe maybe that's a good thing and we need that cycle of consolidation but let's see what happens alrighty um cash in at your own peril uh, this story comes from IsraelNationalNews.com. Apparently, there's a law restricting the use of cash going into effect as the war on cash continues. Um, So um, the use of cash for either wages or payments uh, has a new law restricting that use has come into effect. Titled The Law to Reduce the Use of Cash, um, it's trying to tackle the black economy. And in 2014... A report claimed that about one fifth of economic activity in Israel is unreported, amounting to between eleven and fourteen billion US dollars worth of tax revenue losses. Um, the finance ministry has planned for a ban on transactions involving business or employer cash over the amount of one thousand three hundred dollars, or up to six thousand seven hundred for transactions between two private individuals. Um, and for individuals purchasing from businesses, well, their cash limit's around five thousand. So you could probably uh, buy a smallish secondhand car, but not a lot more. Is this like we've seen a bit of a coordinated policy response to remove cash? But there's always that question about: well, is that harming financial inclusion or is that preventing crime? Where do you guys fall on this?
2: Um, I mean it's a combination of both right because obviously a lot of transactions will still take place in cash especially in Israel I mean it's not it, you know the card is is becoming more commonly used but it's not like um you know Scandinavia for example where you almost you know, never see um Danish or or, or Swedish corner um and also the you know the black market accounts for about 20 percent of GDP um according to the sort of committee that set this up so the countries use losing between sort of ten billion to about thirteen billion dollars a year um you know that's the sort of the the same size of their entire defense budget uh you know it's it's a very uh significant portion of money and if this is the way that they can tackle that then uh you know i think it's 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 hopefully going to be a positive thing in the long run
3: it's, it's definitely a use case to eliminate cash i think the um it's not the same use case really that we saw in sweden or i don't think it's got the same pressures of what we saw in india when they sort of reduced or took out i think it was like 86 percent of the ca- cash flow um this is something sort of entirely different i think you, you've got a point there so when you mention around you know financial inclusion or you know the over-reliance on um electronic uh, payments processes which you know could get hacked something could happen to them especially potentially in israel so you know you're looking at um actually, what are, you know, what are the failsafes? Actually, is cash. And I know in Sweden, they've actually thought of this and they're looking at actually, you know, what would happen if we went completely cashless and actually would that be um, a problem for society and how can we actually, you know, look at some of the, you know, the sort of um, disaster recovery situations and work out ways um, that that, you know, work out ways to tackle that. Um, I know in Sweden, they're talking about 2025 to 2030, actually not having any cash at all. Yeah. Um, so that's really interesting in terms of um, what it would mean or the implications for society. I think in Israel in particular, I'd say the population is probably ready for it. I mean, if you're looking at sort of the um, the characteristics of society, you know, over 60% have um, sort of high online and mobile use. There's over 70% of account transfers are done online. So they are digitally savvy. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing is for me is where the use cases come from. Um, And then, you know, how many other countries will follow this suit?
0: It's going to be interesting to watch. Um, There's there's definitely uh, a rise of alternatives. Of course, India went big on removing an entire note from circulation about a year ago. Uh, We're definitely seeing more central bank moves in this space. Um, but I'm seeing a lot of stick in terms of removing cash and laws, um, and the carrot initiatives tend to be, here's, uh, here's either Paytm or here's, here's an initiative to do mobile payments. But those tend to help the people that are already digitally literate and financially literate. They tend not to be, um, you know, kind of really at the cutting edge of financial inclusion. So there's more to do there for sure.
3: I got asked when I was on holiday, actually, when the UK would become a cashless society, it was, uh, yeah, over a drink in the pub. So I just put my finger in the air and said, uh, in time.
0: Yeah, I think it's one of those where you've started to see some stores now don't accept cash. Uh, whereas ten years ago you saw people didn't accept card, uh, it's starting to flip a little bit. Um, I still do get out into the sticks and somewhere doesn't accept card, and I just find it you know, kind of really strange. Um, and bless her, my mum still has at least uh, a tenner on her everywhere she goes and likes to live in cash because she can do the mental accounting. So there's probably a generational shift in that.
2: But I also think, I mean, if you, I mean, if you Google, you know, um, visiting Israel using credit card or using debit card, and there's sort of entire sort of TripAdvisor forums where they're like, okay, these cards can be used. I mean, the fact that those conversations are even happening, and that oh, most places will, you know, want cash, it's, or, or want dollar even, um, then it's, uh, you know, it just shows that, that, you know, as you say, there will be certain people who, you know, aren't quite ready for this. And from a financial inclusion perspective, then, you know, they have to make sure those, those individuals aren't, you know, left out
0: yeah all our and finally story this week um if you've been doing your new year's resolution if you've been hitting bit.ly forward slash 11fs 2019 um <laughs> then <laughs> then don't worry uh getting your five a day and hitting the gym might save you some money um the, apparently the story comes from american banker the bank that watches your every move foreboding title um Apparently, instead of charging for services based on income and repayments, a South African-based Discovery Bank wants to track its 4.4 million customers offering better deals to those who live healthier lives. Um, So the Discovery Bank's chief exec says, the model allows us to understand price risk more accurately over a client's life as they engage with the program. Um, And Discovery refers to its model as 5.380 which means there are five behaviors that link to three risks that account for 80% of the reasons that people don't meet their financial obligations, which um, I like things that can be described that simply. Um, that's, that's a well-done bit of strategy by whoever did it. Apparently, the five behaviors are spending less than you earn or more, saving regularly or not, uh, ensuring against serious events or not, paying off property or not, um, and investing for the long term, or not Uh, and the more data that customers consent to share with discovery the richer are the rewards Um, the five levels that are sent from blue to diamond that's a little bit creepy but actually the the story itself doesn't relate to the headline this isn't really about going to the gym and getting your five a day that's a great sort of um uh kind of piece um but the bank that watches your every move again doesn't really relate it's it's really um if you give us more data we can Risk score you better, there's something to be said, which which is kind of obvious on the face of it, but it kind of goes to, you know, I'll show um, Tech Insiders, which is available on iTunes now, talks a lot about this, you know, this has been uh, in the insurance space for quite some time, more data equals less risk, but you've always got that privacy concern. Where, Where do you fall on this, Fantine?
2: I mean, I don't know, I think it sort of reminds you a little bit of the, um, you know, what they're introducing in China with the social score where Mm. you can, you know, we're we're watching every move and the way that you uh, behave will then, you know, be a factor in terms of the, you know, uh, the type of um, products that you can get, the types of flights you can take, the class of train ticket you can buy and so on. Um, you know, I think, okay, fine, if, if people are willing to share their data. I mean, people keep, you know, data is a new currency. You keep saying you should get paid, you know, for your data. So this is potentially one way to do that. I mean, I looked into some of the the specifics in terms of getting your money back, and they sort of said, we'll give you 100% back on your gym membership. You have to visit, you know, 36 times a year. So, you know, what, three times a month? Um, it's not it's not crazy. But equally, what does that even mean? I mean, what would you have to do? What would a visit? I mean, you could just tap in and then leave. I mean, uh, and Although I just think...
0: Getting a free gym membership for tapping in and leaving seems somewhat...
2: Pointless, <laughs> but I mean the thing is that then if you let's say you reached let's say you reached 34 yeah. and it's you know you've got two weeks left in December and you don't feel like going could you just go and sort of mm-hmm. cheat the system? I don't know. I mean it's just whether you know how how will they make money from that? I mean surely the people who are savvy enough to sign up for something like this then would really be using it. In which case,
0: I feel like there's a hell of a spreadsheet model somewhere behind this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
3: So. <laughs> I would I would love to see the jobs be done that was that was uh, put in place for this and the uh, the value proposition that sort of and all the work that led up to them I doing this. Mind this. I know I like it, but I just I'll be really intrigued to see how they came to it.
1: I don't think it's necessarily a big jump for people either. I mean this is in South Africa, but I know that in the UK the number one fitness app last year was Sweatcoin, the app that pays you in Bitcoin. Uh, yeah. Or well Sweatcoin anyway for um, every step you take or times you visit the gym. Every move you make. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> every breath
3: um, you take. They'll be watching you. And if that was
1: the number one fitness app for the whole year in the UK, then obviously people are using it. I had a friend of mine from Portsmouth just send me a text saying, you should really be using this. I'm earning some money from just walking around. And she's not a fintech person. So yeah. um, I don't think it's too far off to think that people wouldn't necessarily agree to these things should the perks and the benefits be the right kind of thing to appeal to you.
0: I think also if the bank already had had some sa- a savings account and they were giving me some insurance and they were just using data that they already had that they were protecting to just do something smart and offer me a perk because I was behaving well like
2: oh well, yeah I mean it's like where you have in car insurance right where they yeah. say can you can you can we install this box in your car and then we'll be able to track things and you get a better premium I mean it makes total sense it's just whether and like I said it's 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 selling your data and making some money from it versus
0: I think when the data is working in the consumer's benefit and the data is adequately protected, this is actually a really good thing, and if it's also encouraging behaviours that are in, uh, in the consumer's interests. All three of those things appear to be true in this story. I, I may have missed it, and there's always that double-edged sword of, of like the more data you capture, the more of a data liability you actually have, but I like this.
3: But actually, like for me, another thing that's jumped out is what are the behavioural economics behind this? What are the tools and nudges that they're going to provide the customer to make this so... Um, humans are not rational beings and they'll normally do things which, you know, don't necessarily benefit themselves in the long term. Um, and it's sort of an age old problem for, uh, apps for any product really, which is how do you, or how can you help the customer try and get to where they want to go? Um, and for me, I think the, the interesting point for this is that they're a bank, but they're focused specifically on behavioral economics. If you read their website,
2: it's sort mm. of plastered
3: all over it. Um, how are they doing this? What's the user journeys? What are the tools and tactics that they're using? Are they invasive? Are they not? Et cetera, et cetera. And I think, well, look,
2: look at open banking, right? I mean, this is exactly it. It's the will I share my data to get better products, to get mm-hmm. a better deal. You well, know, with in theory. With the
1: anniversary coming up, it's a
2: good thing well, to be doing. <laughs> I mean, in theory, people are open to it. It makes total sense. But actually, in practice, what we've seen, and I know it's still only been, you know, very early days. But, um, you know, it's not. It's not been that, you know, everyone's been standing up. The
0: fact that you build it doesn't mean that they will come, yeah. despite what the ugly naked dude said in Wayne's World 2. Um, but the if you get the design right, you can get people to get these advantages. So it's great to have this statement of intent. I haven't seen what they've built. I hope they have. Mm. I hope the design matches this intent and that people... Because you see so many apps, um, and we've seen this kind of backlash, and you'll have seen this in, in the last couple of years, where a lot of that sort of playing to the human's dopamine receptors to get me infinitely scrolling about a bunch of shit I don't care about has kind of reached the point of like, well, what's the point of that? Is that in my benefit? Should I just be scrolling and occasionally viewing an advert so that Facebook makes money? Or should I be doing something productive with my time? If I'm using those same design techniques that Facebook used me uh, used to get me hooked to Instagram stories, to actually get people hooked on saving, to get people hooked on paying off their property, to get people hooked on spending less than they earn, that'd be awesome. I'd love, love, love banks to get their heads around proper behavioural design and link it to a strategy. Like, that's the next big thing, I think, for the larger banks to take on. And to my mind, this is where, quote-unquote, PFM and you know, your your money box and your uh, plums mm. and your... even Monzos and Starlings, to a lesser extent, are trying to drive towards. Yeah,
3: like, how can you positively control friction? How can you positively boost, you know, your customers' self-control, uh, help them to make the right decisions like improve their hacking reward. like there's a whole bunch of behavioral economics and then tools which sort of sit under those um, which can be used and I think like f- from my perspective, I think behavioral economics uh, is probably the V3 version three of or the next gen if you like of banking apps like i think that's the that's like the nirvana where where everyone needs to go we
0: saw uh, to around the beginning of uh, mobile banking design thinking and human-centered design came in as the big thing and now that's table stakes i think what we've seen is the next movement has really been okay now we're going to go to the underlying call jobs to be done and then the third step is right once i've understood those jobs um, and i have a product vision can i actually start to think about what behavioral economics i need that are in that Meet those jobs and match those jobs. And then you've got something that you can actually design. We almost started at the end and worked our way back. Any more on this one? I'm going to move on. All right. Well, all that remains for me to do is wrap up this week's show. And thank you very much to our guests. Where can people find out more about you, Val? Uh,
2: you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Val Christensen. If you want to find out more about Oak North, it's oaknorth.com. And if you want to find out more about our fintech platform, it's oaknorth.ai.
0: Ooh, very cool. Uh, how about yourself, Emily?
1: You can find me at Emily Jane Nicole on Twitter, or you can read my stories on CityAM.com
0: excellent How oh and yourself? the
1: paper we do have a paper <laughs> I always forget that part
3: <laughs> I read your paper in the morning
1: me too oh good good I'm glad I pick it, it do. up at
3: Totteridge read it straight all the way to Liverpool Street it's good um, i you can find me in oh, well I'm 11FSer so and, f- <laughs> uh, and at Totteridge and at Totteridge if you're hanging around Totteridge and Whetstone Station I'll be there uh,
0: you, you know like somebody listening to this podcast at Totteridge Station just went wait is that Adam is that the Adam Davies from 11FS <laughs> <laughs> and the
3: people are like listening to this in the states thinking what the hell is he talking about
0: yeah global <laughs> listeners that was a very local joke we yep. do apologize as for me you can find me at bit.ly forward slash 11fs 2019 <laughs> and um of course um tell us what you think of today's stories um get in touch on twitter at fintech insiders or at sy taylor um, and drop me an email simon11fs.com if there's anything you want to talk to us about um we're here at 11fs and we do some awesome shit. thank you for listening and goodbye for now